welcome to the world famous Jiggy Jaguar radio program. Broadcasting live from Hutchinson, Kansas. Well, I'm sitting here with a linguist. I had a linguist. no idea. <laughs> I, love I didn't that. know you were a sir, but I didn't know that you were a wordsmith. <laughs> Call Jiggy right now. 267 22 Jiggy. Hey, Jiggy, what's happening, man? It must be that uh, David Bowie song. Jiggy play guitar, Jeff. It's a great name, man. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Presenting. I'm, I'm Mike Massey, and, uh, you know, you can catch me on Jiggy Jag TV and uh, see a few of my tricks up there. Thank you very much. Jiggy Jaguar. I never knew what freedom was until I saw you lose yours. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the next edition of the world-famous Chiggy Jaguar Radio Broadcast. Thanks for tuning in to the big broadcast, live as live can get. From the KJAG Radio Studios in downtown Hutchinson, Kansas, we are live Monday through Friday, 2 Central, 3 Eastern, 12 Pacific, and 1 p.m. Mountain Standard from JiggyJaguar.com. On the TuneIn apps, of course, our own app is available in both the app stores. Download our podcast on iHeartRadio or on TalkShoe live video via Twitch and our website at J-I-G-G-Y-J-A-G-U-A-R.com. 50-plus AM FM stations across the country and around the world. And you can also find us each and every week on iHeartRadio. Broadcasting on the Roku via the AM, FM, 24-7 network each and every week. And the Jiggy Jaguar radio broadcast is brought to you by our fabulous friends over there at MyPillow. That is right. Save. Save some big-time money when you go to MyPillow.com and use the promo code J-I-G-G-Y. Save 30% on all the great MyPillow products. Fairly recently, we got some my pillows, and these things are absolutely amazing. A lot of people say my pillow is probably the best pillow they've ever slept on. Go over and find out why at mypillow.com. Put in our promo code J I G G Y and save some big time money. At MyPillow.com. Thanks for tuning in and being a part of the big program. Let's go to our first segment here on our big program. It is Mark Mix. He is going to join us here in just a few moments. He is a union. He is against unions. Uh, he's he's not a pro-union guy. And today we're going to be talking about unions on the world-famous Jiggy Jaguar radio broadcast here. And uh, he is going to give us the against unions uh, issue. And uh, I am going to give you the for union issue. Uh, And just talking about unions and do they help or hurt workers uh what are the pros and cons of unions things of this nature but first of all a lot of people don't even know what a union is (laughs) there's a lot of people in the united states have no clue what a union is they don't have a clue what a labor union is 
labor unions, ladies and gentlemen, were organized in this country um, to help workers. Um, labor unions in the United States are organizations that represent workers in many industries. Recognized under the U.S. labor law since 1935 when it was enacted by the National Labor Relations Act. Their activity today, well, they center around, uh, Peter is preparing to jump up on the desk, so I have to get all my notes and everything out of the way or they will be Peterfied and I will not have any notes for the rest of the show. <laughs> However, we need to have a Peter cam. That's what we need. Labor unions, their activity today centers on collective bargaining over wages, benefits, working conditions for their membership, and or representing their members in disputes with management over violations of contract provisions. Larger trade unions also typically engage in lobbying activities and electioneering at the state and federal level. And that is where <laughs> Mark Mix is going to have the issue. But most labor unions are aligned with something called the AFL-CIO, which was created in 1955. And the Change to Win Federation, which split from the AFL-CIO in 2005, both advocate policies and legislation on behalf of the workers of the United States and Canada, Canada, and take on an active role in politics. The AFL-CIO is especially concerned with global trade issues. Now, do they help or do they hurt? Employers and workers seem to approach employment from vastly different perspectives. So how can the two sides reach an agreement? The answer lies in unions, which is what we're talking about today. Unions have played a role in the worker-employee and employer dialogue for centuries. But in the last few decades, many aspects of the business environment have changed. With this in mind, it's important to understand how unions fit into the current business environment and what role unions play in the modern economy. Now, some of the key takeaways are that unions are organizations that negotiate with business and other entities on behalf of union members and then of course unions come in all shapes and sizes from trade unions focusing on specific jobs to industry unions focusing on entire industries we already addressed what unions are and what they do but how do unions affect the labor environment the power of union labor, labor unions rests in their two main tools of influence, restricting labor supply and increasing labor demand. And some of these folks can push for minimum wage increases. Minimum wage increases the labor cost for employers using low-skilled workers. This decreases the gap between the wage rate of low-skilled and high-skilled workers. High-skilled workers are more likely to be represented by a union. And then, of course, they increase the marginal productivity of its workers. This is often done through training. They support restrictions on imported goods through quotas and tariffs. This increases the demand for domestic production and, therefore, domestic labor. And uh, 
According to the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, 10.8% of the working population were members of the union in 2020. So, we know what a labor union is. We know what they do. So, we are going to get Mark Mix on the phone in the next segment. And we will discuss exactly the helping and the hurting of, of labor unions and what they do and all that shenanigans. So coming back on our next segment, we've got Mark Mix here on the world famous Cheeky Jaguar Radio Broadcast. Attention Medicare beneficiaries. Are you getting all the benefits you need? If you have Medicare, you may now be able to get new benefits. Benefits may include eyeglasses, wellness visits, gym membership, meal delivery, and hearing aids with low copay. To find out which benefits you qualify for and to find out if you're getting the benefits that you deserve, you need to call Best Medicare. Our licensed insurance agents can look up your current benefits and tell you what additional benefits are available to you. It's easy. Just one call. Tell us the deductibles you prefer, the doctors you want to see, and if you want prescription drug coverage. The service is free and you have no obligation. You may even find plans with zero monthly plan premiums, zero co-pays on many services, and zero deductibles. You deserve every medical care coverage benefit out there and we'll help you get them. Call 800-991-7014. 800-991-7014. That's 800-991-7014. And let Best MedCare do the work for you. Now that we're home more than ever, we need to feel safe. Call it a sign of the times or the world we now live in. What do you want to keep safe? The people in your life? What do you want to protect? Your possessions? The things that belong to you? The things that you've worked hard for? Wouldn't it be nice to have tested, trusted 24-7 protection? Peace of mind, real protection that's always there for you and your whole family? Well, now you can with one of our state-of-the-art home security systems. Everyone thinks their home is safe until the unexpected happens. Start protecting your home and loved ones today with the affordable next generation in home security. To keep your family and property safe, call 1-800-676-1070. Representatives are standing by to assist you. That's 1-800-676-1070. 1-800-676-1070. If you don't have final expense insurance, this message is for you. LifeCare provides valuable whole life insurance to help cover final expenses, medical bills, burial costs, and unpaid debt. A final expense insurance policy is fast, easy, affordable life insurance, available to anyone between the ages of 50 and 80. No medical exams, no lengthy questionnaires, and no waiting period. Call LifeCare at 800-926-6092, 800-926-6092, 800-926-6092. LifeCare provides valuable whole life insurance to cover final expenses, such as medical bills, burial costs, and unpaid debt. 
A final expense insurance policy is fast, easy, affordable life insurance that's available to anyone between the ages of 50 and 80. No medical exams, no lengthy questionnaires, and no waiting period. The application process is quick and easy. You can even apply without having to undergo a medical examination. Just answer a few questions and we'll do the rest. With the average funeral costs skyrocketing to $11,000 and Social Security only paying $255, you need simple, affordable peace of mind for you and your whole family. Don't leave behind unpaid expenses, expenses that, if left unattended, will burden your family tremendously. Benefits include a guaranteed premium that will never increase, a guaranteed cash value, and a guaranteed death benefit that can never decrease. To find out how you can get final expense insurance with a guaranteed lifetime rate lock, call LifeCare at Okay, we don't have Mark Mix. <laughs> we, we don't have Mark Mix for our next segment here on unions. So, I'm not even sure what the heck we're going to do. <laughs> oh, this is what happens when you do live radio and you're like, hey, I'm going to put a uh, topical show together here and... We're going to see what we can get figured out. And uh, Dawn, uh, while, while, while I get our next guest in here, uh, what, what, did, what did you think of Michael and, and his message and everything? Well, I was very moved by it. I mean, he's doing what to me is the practical thing. Uh, if you've ever been in a firefight, uh, a, a vest is, is certainly some very comforting. It's heavy, uncomfortable. And I can say a lot of things, but I've seen it save too many lives. I think we've got our next guest. Mark, how are you, sir? I am doing fine. How are you? Pretty good, actually. We have got our next guest with us today. Mark Mix joins us. He's the president of the National Right to Work Committee, and uh, it's a 2.8 million member public policy organization. He serves as the president of the National Right to Work Legal Defense Foundation, and he joins us today here in our program. We also have our good friends IQL Rizzoli and Don Mazzella with us as well. So, Mark, one of the things that is... Uh, uh, going on, which I I just had to have you on to discuss this. Um, this Democratic spending bill is a giant giveaway to their donors, the labor unions. Uh, they they, they want to go ahead and and have the have the lovely corporations go through and do the uh, build back better with the roads and the bridges, so they can put in tolls, so then they can tax everybody to death. Uh, and then the labor unions get a big cut of this. Tell us a little bit about this, my friend. Yeah, James, it's not uh, any surprise. You know, when you're spending what four point seven million trillion? I'm sorry, look at me. I'm I'm in billions <laughs> and millions. Right. My you... goodness, we're already a trillion. I apologize. When you're spending four point seven trillion dollars 
Uh, there is plenty of money to go around to lots of folks. And, and to your point, James, the organized labor officials have, have used and parlayed their support of this president and this Congress to basically have themselves written into a very large chunk of this $4.7 trillion behemoth that actually our president tells us won't cost us anything. And so we don't have to worry about anything then, James, because it won't cost anything. <laughs> but the bottom line is this. There are literally, literally billions and billions of dollars going to organized labor, or at least favoring those that have union contracts and force workers to pay dues or fees or join a union as a condition of employment. And so we start with the infrastructure bill, the $1.2 trillion. There's $43 billion in there that is set aside with just simply 16 words on page 2038 that would say any telecommunications build-out, broadband internet stuff that they talk so much about, would go to union contractors only. So if you're a non-union contractor, if your workers have decided they didn't want to be in a union, you probably can't participate in $43 billion worth of telecommunications build-out. As far as the construction of roads and bridges, the so-called prevailing wage laws uh, apply there. The Davis-Bacon laws that were written back in the 1930s that were purely written on a, on a racist basis to keep black construction workers out of the Northeast and, and out of building, they're going to apply that. And the only way you can do business under the Davis-Bacon law is if you have a union contract. So there are literally hundreds of billions of dollars written into that part of it. Uh, should I go farther? <laughs> Don, jump in there, my friend. Well, um, uh, I have a lot of questions, but uh, my, uh, the two that come to mind, A, I thought the Supreme Court ruled that uh, you, uh, the, um, being a member of the union, you could a um, uh, opt out if you wanted to, and you certainly could ask them to stop political spending. And I thought that was also written in. They were trying to get around that in the bill. And um, uh, two, that the the, the bill really uh, straightjackets corporations against union organizing. Would you want to comment on that? Yeah, Don, you're up to speed on the latest. And, and those those lawsuits and those laws that you're talking about are basically results of Supreme Court decisions that we've won. In 1988, we won a case called Beck versus Communication Workers of America, which basically protected private sector workers from being forced to pay for union politics, meaning you could you could withdraw your membership. You still could be forced to pay up to 100% of dues as a condition of keeping your job, but you, you didn't have to be a member of the union, and if you could get the union to tell you what they were spending on politics, you could get out of that portion of it. The only problem with that, Don, is the Hobson's choice that workers face. In order to participate in union elections, to vote on the contract that governs uh, the terms and conditions of your employment, to, to participate in any way in the workplace when it comes to your job and, and how uh, your employer is dealing with you, you have to be a member of the union. If you're a non-member, you can't, you can't do those types of activities that a, a union member can do in the workplace. In the public sector, we won a Supreme Court case back in 2018 called Janus v. AFSCME that freed every government employee from being forced to pay fees in order to work for their government. And obviously, that, the argument there, Don, is exactly as you said. You know, you, you shouldn't be forced to pay for political political ideas or ideology that you disagree with. And the Supreme Court said on behalf of public sector workers, they said it was a violation of the First Amendment to force a worker to do that. So we've won a pretty good set of, of you know, laws here and protections for workers, but it goes farther than that because union officials don't tell workers what they're spending on politics. They don't tell them how they can get out of the union and how they can avoid the political and ideological causes. And then they use the reconciliation bill and the infrastructure bill that we're dealing with today to 
shoehorn you're exactly right ways around it workarounds basically saying that you know that uh, uh, you have to you have to you know, your union dues get our ta- top of the line tax deduction or in order to to get a $4500 tax credit you have to buy a unionized built electric vehicle or if you're a small business and you violate any labor law you could be fined up to $100,000 for any violation these are the types of things they're writing in um, they can't quite get to repeal the 27 right to work laws like they that they're trying to do in standalone legislation that's already passed the House and the Senate. The so-called PRO Act is a smorgasbord of big labor privileges over workers. It doesn't do anything for workers. It does a whole lot for union officials. But they'll try every every possibility. And, and down to your point, there are several parts of the PRO Act that they've shoehorned into the Reconciliation Bill and the Infrastructure Bill. Well, let me go a step further. The Wall Street Journal, I believe it was yesterday, uh, said was, I read it someplace that uh, a union representation in the private sector in the in the battleground states has plummeted uh, something like 27 to 29 percent, and that um, uh, oh I know what uh, it's in in the old towns that depend uh, in, in the Midwest that depended on on some industry to stay alive. But it seems to me, and in general, over the last 20 years, we've seen a, a total reduction in private sector union jobs. The only place they've grown is in the uh, government jobs. So uh, what are you doing to um, uh, uh, keep that type going? And uh, um, can, can you uh, then use the power of the courts to get some of the uh, some of these uh, uh, goodies uh, uh, overturned, we are, and you know, James and I have talked about this in the past, where the the, the basically the rank and file workers have a much different opinion about issues and ideas than the union officials back here in Washington D.C. And the divide between rank and file workers and union officials that claim to represent them is growing wider and wider all the time. And probably the best case study was 2016 when Donald Trump won states like Wisconsin and Michigan. And you know, union officials looked around yeah, after spending a couple hundred million dollars to uh, to get Hillary Clinton into the White House, they looked around and said, what the heck happened? Well, what happened was rank-and-file workers stood up and believed in policies that were articulated by President Trump at the time, or then candidate Trump at the time, you know, talking about protecting the border, uh, building back here in America, bringing manufacturing jobs back to the, to the small towns that you're talking about, Don, that were part of that Wall Street Journal article. I mean, the, the attitudes and the voter preferences of those folks out there in kind of mid-America and small-town America have changed dramatically, and union officials have completely lost touch. I mean, when you have a teacher's union that tells, you know, tells kids not to tell their parents what they're teaching in school and teach critical race theory. And, t- and say that it's perfectly fine for the kids to be out of school because it, it doesn't matter if they don't l- learn their times tables. They're learning about what the difference between a protest and a riot, what insurrection and a coup is. That's what they're learning about as they were out of school. And, and don't worry about them being back in school because they'll get over that. I mean, that's the union leadership, so-called, and I'm using my finger quotes here, that is articulating these policies. And the rank and file workers and most ordinary Americans are running away from it as fast as they can. So well, may I ask a question now? Yes, Go ahead, I'm sorry, I so What's the difference between the, the crime syndicate, the organized crime syndicate, and the unions then? 
<laughs> well, I have to be a little circumspect here because what happens, union officials have the protection of the law. Going all the way back to the 1930s when Roosevelt pushed through the National Labor Relations Act, which was the federal impingement on states' rights when it came to private sector um, unionization, he basically said that union officials had the power to force workers into their associations, into their collectives, and then he went on and said they can force them to pay up to 100 percent of dues and actually be a formal member of the union. I don't think the mafia got that type of uh, privilege or power granted to them by the federal government. They, they, they obtained it through other means, but in this case, union officials have used the power of government, whether it be in state capitals or whether it be in Washington, D.C., to get the power of force. No other private organization, legal private organization in, in America has the privilege of forcing someone to do something. We gave a little bit of force to government as part of this grand experiment in self-government, this idea of a democratic republic. But we've given it to nobody else. But yet union officials still, to this day, get to exercise the ability to have a worker fired if they don't pay them for the right to work. The mafia did a little bit differently, and sometimes the sheriff and the police would show up if they they got caught. In the case of forced unionism, government-imposed forced unionism, it's still legal under the law. But we're working on that. We've got the Supreme Court to protect the First Amendment rights of public sector employees, we've got some work to do to protect those same rights for private sector employees. Fantastic. Sorry, go on. Um, It's ironic you said that because I read a story uh, in the last two days about um, how the the five families here in New York uh, are not letting uh, uh, younger people in because they feel they're not tough enough to be members of the mob. Uh, I, I just thought... I just thought it was interesting. That has nothing to do with what we're talking about. But uh, could I ask you this question? I mean, that decision, uh, I believe it was Amazon, where uh, the the voters vote, the uh, employees voted overwhelmingly uh, not to go to a union, and then the NLRB uh, overturned it based on the mailbox outside the... uh, um, yeah, Don, you're, you're really well informed about that. Yep, you're really well informed about that. That was probably the biggest union election we've had in the last couple of years. It was basically a, a 5,200-member unit down in Bessemer, Alabama, at a distribution warehouse. And if you read the papers, read the so-called mainstream media, and listened to the president of the United States, who actually did a video encouraging those workers to vote for unionization, it was the only way they were going to have power in the workplace. And literally, international uh, politicians chimed in and said, you know, we've got to get this, you, you have to get unionized down there at Bessemer. Alabama. But basically, the union of those voting in that election, less than 24, I think it was 24 percent of the workers voted for the union, um, voted to have the union represent them. And if you took all of the workers in the unit, even those that didn't vote, I think it was roughly just about 17 or 13 percent of the workers who said, yes, we would like a union represent it. When they interviewed, you, you know, workers at the place, they said, we got a great situation here. Obviously, in a big organization with 5,200 employees, things go wrong all the time. But they said they were happy with their benefits, happy with their pay, and it was a huge, huge defeat for organized labor. But you're right, Don. The NLRB came in and said that because Amazon set up a United States post office box in front of their shop, to help make it easier for workers to cast a vote because it was a mail ballot election. Workers had to mail in their ballots. The NLRB is deciding whether or not to have a rerun of that election because they think giving workers a 
a, a more of opportunity to cast their votes was somehow a violation of the labor uh, labor law in this country. When in fact, the statutory means for selecting a union as your bargaining representative. The statute says it has to be a secret ballot election. But in this case, the NLRB sets up, you know, card check elections. They allow that. If the unions can get a certain number of cards signed, they can be recognized. Or if they make it easier for workers to cast ballots, that somehow is a violation of the law. Yeah. Uh, I, I read, read the case, uh, and I, I saw I don't know if you saw the 60, uh, the, uh, um, uh, uh, national team and television thing where, where they they interviewed four people who voted for it and no one who voted against it i thought that was <laughs> yeah uh, uh, you know the, we had a guest on just before you that uh, said how uh, it's very difficult to get the message across um uh, iq do you want to say anything or can i can go on no no go on please go on um uh, let me ask you this now. Um, uh, uh, the right to vote, uh, the, uh, the, the uh, right to work law is to me one of the um, uh, best ways of uh, containing the union. What are you going to do to uh, fight this tide in, over the next uh, two years, uh, two years? Well, first of all, we've got to we've got to defeat the the policies that are working their way through Congress right now. As I mentioned, this so-called Pro Act, which would repeal all 27 right to work laws, has already passed the House with no committee hearings and no testimony, and it's in the Senate. And as you already indicated, they're trying to take pieces of this thing and you know shoehorn it into the uh, infrastructure bill and the reconciliation bill. So we've got to defeat that. But what the most important job we have is to continue to get the word out about forced unionism, and and that requires requires uh, opportunities like this. And James, I thank you for the opportunity to bring us on and uh, all of us to talk about these issues. Because when you ask an American about whether or not union officials should have the power to force a worker to pay dues or fees to get or keep a job, out of over eight out of 10 Americans believe it's wrong. So the best way to change this and the best way to continue to uh, oppose forced unionism and promote voluntary unionism is to have conversations like this and have the Congress vote on these issues. I mean, the House has already voted. 225 members of the House already voted, some of them from right-to-work states that have right-to-work protections already on the books. That doesn't stop anyone from joining a union if they want to, but it just says you can't be forced to pay dues or fees to keep your job or to get a job. Very, very simple stuff. But those those politicians have already voted saying, yes, I'm in favor of federally imposed forced unionism. Now what the job is, is to make sure that people in their state and their districts understand the votes that were cast to maintain and expand forced unionism out of workers. And we know that the American people find out about this type of stuff and we get the information out there. They change their behavior about the politicians they support. And that's how it should work in a democratic republic. We loan our power to elected officials. We, we elect them to, to basically speak for us. And when they don't speak for us, we take that power away. And I know sometimes in some districts and some states across the country, it's very hard to take that power away. In fact, there are those that make the case that it's impossible. I don't believe in impossible. We have a right to work law in Michigan. People told me that was impossible, but we got it done. And so I believe the, in the art of the possible. And, and I think if we continue to have conversations like this, continue to get the word out about the power that organized labor has that sometimes can be equated with that of the mafia and and uh, those bosses of, of cities around the country, we can win the day. And it, but it comes to being, you know, educating constituents about what their power and how it works is all about. 
you made a fantastic statement. There is no such thing as impossible. I've always said, if you have the will, you succeed. Yeah. Yeah. And we believe that. We believe that. Yeah. I, I believe in it, too. But can I point out something to you uh, for another uh, program? I've been watching this. The last five days, the New York Times, the, the, the paper of records, has not <laughs> mentioned the southern border in any story it has in its print or in its um, online services. The last five yeah. days. Yeah. How do you? Well, that's not a surprise. Yeah, that's not, not a, surprise. a surprise. I mean, but but it's yeah. but it sets the agenda. Uh, it's unfortunate, uh, but any newsman will tell you that the time sets the agenda. Yet, how do you break through through this? I mean, uh, I have to tell you that if I hadn't dug deeper, uh, I, I would not know half of the stuff that you're mentioning. And there's a couple of things that you mentioned today. I like to say I'm a very well-informed newsman. I did not know. But uh, how do you break through that? Well, I think what you have to do and what has been happening is you build around it. I mean, the the you know, obviously back when I was a young a young boy growing up and and we had a chance to watch the news, I mean, you know, when Walter Carncake came on and said what was happening in the world, we believed him. And then we found out that it necessarily what the big mainstream media establishments like the New York Times and the Washington Post and, and others, we found out that they weren't really interested in telling us the truth. They were telling us what they believe, what they believe to be uh, important, but what wasn't really important. And so just like other opportunities, like, you know, the, the taxi monopoly, all of a sudden the workaround is Uber and Lyft, an algorithm that basically allows people to turn on a machine and turn it off and pick up people and provide a product or an alternative to a, t- a taxi monopoly. I mean, the right to work law is a great example in, you know, when we had states that had forced unionism, manufacturing didn't feel like there was an opportunity to get out. And now that right to work laws have passed in 27 states, you know, the automotive industry has moved from kind of the, the Rust Belt region of the Great Lakes, which is now actually right to work. It's in the we passed five new right to work laws in the last 10 years, including Wisconsin, Michigan and Indiana, where there was a huge footprint of, of automotive manufacturing. But it started moving to the south where workers and and Capital and labor could work together to basically help everybody. And the bottom line is there are workarounds and alternatives. And what you're doing by having this interview and and having this conversation, we're working around the establishment media as people tune in. The Internet has provided uh, a workaround, and they they begin to realize how big of a workaround that is because they're trying to shut it down and trying to keep things off of of the Internet. But, you know, (laughs) where there's a will, there's a way, and and we just have to keep working around it and stay, stay persistent. Um, and stay, you know, and just continue to talk about these issues in whatever means we can. I mean, people do go out and try to find additional information. There is some subset of our population that will take everything they hear and say, that must be real. But I think there's a growing population in America that says, you know what, let me do my own research, just like you said you were doing. And I think that's a good thing. And while it doesn't happen fast enough, it's happening. And that's where we have to rely on continuing to get the word out. Uh, I, for one, say keep going at it. But could I just point out something to you? I worked as a copy boy with Huntley Brinkley. I'm going to tell you how old I am. Amen. (laughs) (laughs) But um, when we put together the show, 
It was not what we thought was uh, should be on the show, but what were the main issues of the day? Okay, I can tell you that from having sat there for almost a year. But um, today, what you say, what you just said, is true. They want to. Uh, the media talks about what they want to talk about rather than what's important. But uh, and what you're saying is. You hitting it with little rocks one at a time. Do you think you can be able to pull down the edifice before it pulls us down? I think so. You know, that's interesting. You talk, you you raise those issues because it is very easy for us as Americans to think that there's nothing ever been like this in the country, and we're we're you know there's no hope. But, I, you know, it's almost hubris of, of us in this generation. And I know we're, I'm talking with a couple of generations here. I'm, I'm getting a little long in the tooth myself. But, but here's what I would say to that is that America's gone through quite a bit. And she's taken a lot of, a lot of shelling and a lot of hits. And, and by golly, she's still alive and she's still working. And, and there are still people that believe in who and what we are. And, you know, I just think we got, we just got to keep at it. And yes, that edifice that you talk about. I mean, one day you had the you had the Berlin Wall, you know, that that kept people in. It was designed to keep people in and stop freedom. And one day you wake up in the morning and there's thousands of people surrounding it and the things falling down and you find out that the the concrete's eroding and the rebar's eroded and rusted and the the, the that wall that symbol of compulsion and force and and tyranny fell. And, you know, I, I don't want to be Pollyannish about it, but I do, I do believe it's hard. I mean, you guys, you three couldn't continue to do what you're doing if you didn't believe we could make a difference. And I believe the same thing. So we just have to keep at it, keep fighting. They'll come for us one day and, and, and try to keep us quiet, but, but there'll be another voice that will rise up. And that's what I do believe. And on the issue of forced unionism, we have made so much progress from the days when the federal government said you're forced to join an organization and pay an organization in order to work. The fact that we've got 27 states that have right-to-work laws, the fact that we've won a U.S. Supreme Court case upholding the First Amendment rights of all public sector workers across the country gives me hope that there's a lot more left in this fight than uh, than we might imagine. Amen. Question. Exactly. Yes, go ahead, Why IQ. Why do you only have 27 states? Why shouldn't it be 50 states? I don't understand why the governors <laughs> of the other states have a different point of view. Why? Well, you know, James got to that a little bit early. They, they, they're paying off their constituents. And, you know, sometimes when you ask questions like that, you follow the money. And uh, when you follow the money trail from big labor bosses in Washington, D.C. and across the country, you find out that they give probably anywhere from 95 to 98 percent of all their money to one political party. I won't tell you who that is, just to be fair, but I think you can figure it out. And that explains a lot why these politicians do the things they do. So they're both. They sold out. That's what you're telling me. Yeah. Well, Essentially. Um, I'll let you say it, but I think we can draw our own conclusions. I would say I agree, I agree with you because you're an American citizen. I'm not an American citizen, so I don't give a damn. Yes, well, uh, both. Your organization. Can I ask your organization again? My, uh, our organization, the National Right to Work Committee and the National Right to Work Foundation. Okay. This one, yep. I want to make sure. I want to run them down and follow you. 
run them, run them down. You'll find some great information. And we, we, we actually are out there on that amazing internet or interweb, whatever you want to call it. And that's a, that's another vehicle that we use to get a hold of people and have people call us and and tr- and learn about their rights and exercise their rights. In fact, the cases that we argue, we we've argued 18 cases in front of the United States Supreme Court on behalf of employees whose rights have been violated. We have 21 staff attorneys who do nothing but represent employees. As of today, active today, we have about 238 cases pending right now in various levels of the court system, including the National Labor Relations Board, federal courts. We have two cases still pending at the U.S. Supreme Court right now that we're asking them to hear about the rights of of uh, public sector employees and how union officials violate those rights. I mean, it's an ongoing battle. It's one that we continue to fight. And and boy, it's uh, I've had no problem getting up in the morning and going to work because there's still liberty to be liberty to be protected and freedom to be re- restored. So we just need to keep at it. Keep doing it. Yeah. Well, before yeah. we go, I, I want to start with uh, IQ. IQ, uh, give us your view on today's show and how we get a hold of you on online and everything. Well, as usual, you have excellent people. At least we agree with them. And we have the same point of view that we want to to bring America back to greatness again, even without uh, Trump, if possible. The, I thank the gentleman for his efforts and his organization, and God willing, they will succeed in every single case. Because there's no way on earth it's, it's, it's moral to have the, the organized work against the individual worker against them. Um, no, no, it's a fantastic show. Thank you. So, uh, Don Mazzella, uh, give us an update on your book and, and everything else that you've got going on. I wish you wouldn't keep asking me because I, <laughs> I, I keep going out there. But anyway, it's the National Robotics Education Foundation, the, the-nref.org, uh, 2SB Digest, www.2SBDigest, uh, donmazella.com. Um, uh, can I just uh, have a, a 30 seconds to tell you something about the NLRB? Yes, go ahead, my friend. Go ahead, and then we'll go tomorrow. You might enjoy this, our guest. You know, I sat on the board of a medical marijuana company, and we had a, 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 and two of our employees brought us up against uh, to the NLRB and um, uh, complained. They wanted them to... Uh, uh, unionize our our shop, okay? And we go out there, we engage an attorney and everything. We go up to Philadelphia to the NLRB. You know what they said? Since you're an illegal operation, we can't uh, rule on you because we were <laughs> we were doing marijuana. So and they said well, uh, we have no jurisdiction. Uh, can you believe that? Um, anyway, I, I think it's a funny story. So we want one. Well, back. it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, one of the things that happened down out in the in the state legislatures is in order to get a you get a cannabis license now to operate a cannabis uh, expense a dispensary or whatever, you have to be unionized. They, that's one of the requirements now in many states. We've been battling this legislation, but it pops up. I mean, they'll do anything they can to force people into union collectives, including using legislative power, regulatory power to say, yeah, you can't get a license unless you agree to be neutral 
when your employees come and say they want to be uh, they want to unionize in a marijuana dispensary. But yeah. And then because the, the federal law still is it's illegal what to dispense marijuana under federal law, state laws allow it. But the federal jurisdiction of the National Relations Board, that's kind of an interesting dilemma that they're faced with there, I suspect. Yes. Um, I'm from, the, well, uh, it was in New Jersey. Need I say more? Uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, but it's interesting. Well, the first case, is the NLRB going to rule uh, uh, against something that is essentially uh, illegal under federal law? You know, it's, it's really funny. So, uh, yeah, I, I'm giving you something to think about. Absolutely. I'm, I'm going to talk to one of our attorneys tomorrow about that very issue, because that is that is a fascinating problem. Um, we haven't been confronted with that yet. No, no uh, employees that have been uh, in a unionization drive where they're being forced into collectives or uh, that way have called us yet. That as far as I know, I'll have to check on that. But that's a really interesting issue. Well, Mark, uh, before we let you go, my friend, how do people get in touch with what you're doing and everything? Well, James, thanks for again for an opportunity to talk and and to uh, kick around some ideas and some and some thoughts. But they can find us at nrtw nrtw dot org. That's our Legal Defense Foundation. And then on the legislative side, they can find information about the legislation in their state or the legislation in Washington D.C. at nrtwc dot org. nrtwc dot org. Fantastic. Well, uh, this has been a uh Fantastic conversation. Thanks to IQL Rizzoli, Don Mazzella, and Mark Mix. And Mark, I will be in touch. And IQ and Don, I will talk to you guys next week. Have a nice day. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Yep. There they go. And uh, that is that. And that wraps it up here from our big broadcast. And we are going to see you next time. We are live, coast to coast, border to border on iHeartRadio today. AMFM247.com. Of course, you can find us at our website, JiggyJagwire.com. And as we wrap up today, we've heard from, I've given you exactly what labor unions are, what they do, how they do it, all these things. We heard from Mark Mix, who gave us his opinion of things and Talked about the downfalls of unions and, oh my God, unions are crazy kind of thing. So I want to give you 36 things, or at least as many as I can name within the time we have, as to what unions have made possible. Uh, The first one on the list is weekends without work. They have made sure that employers give people weekends off. Uh, Number two, of course, is all your breaks at work, including your lunch breaks. You wouldn't have that without unions. Paid vacation, family and dental leave, sick leave, Social Security, minimum wage, the Civil Rights Act, Title VII, which prohibits employer discrimination. An eight-hour workday, which <laughs> trying to roll back, it seems now. Overtime pay, which a lot of folks don't really see that anymore. Child labor laws. 
Occupational Safety and Health Act, which is also known as OSHA. The 40-hour work week. Workers' compensation, which is basically workman's comp. Unemployment insurance. Pensions. Workplace safety standards and regulations. Employer health care insurance. Collective bargaining rights for employees. Wrongful termination laws. Age Discrimination and Employment Act of 1967, the ADEA. Whistleblower protection laws. Employee Polygraph Protection Act, which prohibits employers from using a lie detector test on an employee. Veterans Employment and Training Services. Compensation increases and evaluations, basically raises. Sexual harassment laws. The Americans with Disabilities Act, the ADA, which prohibits discrimination against individuals with disabilities in all areas of public life, including jobs, schools, transportation, all public and private places that are open to the general public. Holiday pay, employer dental, life, and vision insurance, privacy rights, pregnancy and parental leave, military leave, the right to strike, Public Education for Children, Equal Pay Acts of 1963 and 2011, which require employers pay men and women equally for the same amount of work, and laws ending sweatshops, of course, in the United States. That is all what unions have done. If those are all things that you like, thank your American labor unions. Um, if you don't, well... Keep bashing labor unions, I guess. That's been our guest and our segment today. We want to thank everybody for joining us here on our big broadcast. What good things labor unions uh, have done? I know there are a lot of people that are down on labor unions. <laughs> I know that they've done some crazy crap over the last couple of years politically. But for the most part, labor unions are a pretty good thing. So that wraps it up here for our big broadcast. You decide. Uh, listen to what Mark Mix had to say. Listen to what I had to say. Listen to the news earlier. It's, it's an incredible segment. It is this edition, the big broadcast talking labor unions. We will see you next time. Attention Medicare.